Section 28 of The Perfect World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Beth Blakely, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The Perfect World by Ella Scrimsour, Section 28. The Cave of Whispering Madness. Throughout the night, Alan watched. Never did Comervin move from his place in the clearing. Never did his eyes close, nor did he show the slightest inclination to sleep. Towards morning, Wyco raised himself from the ground. He was pitiable to look upon. Led on by a stronger will, the madness had come upon him also. But it was a weaker madness than that which affected Comervin. It was a madness that chattered and gibbered in the sun, that laughed and cackled insanely, a madness that was pitiful to behold. Alan watched through the leafy branches, and as the dawn rose many times he met Clory's questioning gaze with looks of encouragement and help, and she knew that when the time was ripe this strange lord from another world would save and deliver her. As Colmervin still made no attempt to move, Alan wondered whether it would be possible to overpower him. He made a movement and the slight sound was heard. Colmervin sprang to his feet and looked round, and Alan saw he was clutching a huge limb of a tree, a formidable weapon in a madman's hands. He was evidently not satisfied and peered round the tree trunks carefully. Quietly, Alan crept behind a large bush, and dropping on his belly, he wormed himself underneath it until he was completely hidden. The crackling of a twig was heard by the madman, who with his dormant passions aroused was a dangerous enemy. He spoke sharply to Wyco. "'What sound is that, my Wyco? Is it the stranger that tracketh us?' "'I know not,' said Wyco, shuddering. "'O Colmervin, my friend, let us leave the Ipso Roker here, and flee from the wrath of her father.' "'Nonsense, my Wyco! When the Rorca is told that his daughter Clory the Fair, Clory the Pure, has spent forty and one nights with us in the darkness, he will be glad to give his soiled goods into my keeping forever. Then in good time I shall become Rorca.' Shall I not punish my Clory then for her indifference and insults? Wyco shuddered. My Clory, cried Comervin suddenly, his manner changing. Will you not promise me your hand? Oh, my darling, forgive me. I love you so, I love you. Give me your hand. Swear before Wyco that you'll take me for your mate. I'll be so good to you. I'll love you so. His voice was pleading. His earnestness could not be doubted. Yet Alan knew it was but a moment's lull in the disordered brain. Clory never answered a word, and her silence drove Colmervin again to threats. Tearing a handful of withes from the side of a running brook, he lashed the captive princess across her legs with the stinging rushes. With an oath, Alan burst from his hiding-place, and was on the back of his enemy before Colmervin could recover from his astonishment. Then followed a terrific fight. Alan, with all his knowledge of the scientific sport, was enabled to get in a knockout blow. He parried and thrust and landed Colmervin a heavy blow under his jaw. His opponent tottered for a moment, but the blow had no lasting effect, and the heavy Camernian struck mightier blows still at his enemy. Wyco was entirely demoralized. He stood watching the fight, his breath coming in gasps, his blue eyes staring, his teeth chattering. As an ally, he was useless to Comorvin. As an enemy, he counted as naught to Alan. Clory, tied tightly to the tree, was unable to move. Her wide-open eyes followed the fighters in an agony of spirit but not a sound came from her lips. True to the tradition of her land, the daughter of the Rorca gave no audible sign of her terror. Alan knew he was weakening. 
imperceptibly at first he lost ground but gradually he realized that his blows had no effect upon the Chimernian. his hasty rush into the field of battle was worse than useless he could no longer help his love the Chimernian gave him one terrific blow in the stomach his wind went he gasped choked for breath crumpled up and sank to the ground colmervin left his vanquished enemy's side and went to wyco who had been stupidly watching the scene watch him he commanded if he show any sign of awakening give him a blow with this it will be sufficient to put him to sleep again and he tossed the heavy stick beside the prostrate body brutally he untied the ropes that bound clory she was stiff and weak and the agony as the blood once more coursed freely through her veins was almost more than she could bear still she remained silent and with a noble gesture of majesty stooped and drew her mantle of blue about her naked body two other garments still lay on the ground with a sudden thought she caught one up and drew it within the folds of her cloak she had a plan love had been born to her in that exquisite moment of agony when she saw alan knocked down her soul cried out within her that here was her maid at last her fine sense of belief and trust told her that it was impossible that he was sleeping the sleep of the circer sometime he would rise again bruised bleeding torn perhaps but rise he would and come to her aid Colmervin took her roughly by the arm. Come, said he. Wyco, wait until the Kaimo is full in the heavens. It is but a short time. If Alan the Evil has not moved by then, follow me quickly, always to the east, my friend. Always take the most easterly path, and you will find me. Where are you going? asked Wyco in horror. To the cave of whispering madness, said he, and involuntarily Clory shuddered. Do you know where it is, my Colmervin? asked Wyco. Yes. Have I not been there often? Ah, my friend, I arranged that the engine should fail. Ah, oft times should I have been in the Hall of Sorrows, but I came here instead, and of my own free will. I know the place I intend taking you to. I will show you sights, sights I have seen. Ha, ha, ha! And with a wild burst of laughter, he dragged his unwilling captive through the bushes and made his way eastward. Wyco remained silent, watching his vanishing friend. His mind was working strangely. The madness had left a deep sense of fear in the heart of Wyco. The inanimate body of Alan seemed to point to his undoing. The blood trickled slowly down the unconscious man's face till there was a little red pool shining wickedly on the green grass. With a cry, Wyco picked up the club and swung it once, twice around his head, but as he would have swung it a third time, it slipped out of his nerveless fingers and went spinning a hundred feet away. With a cry at his loneliness, Wyco turned and fled after Colmervin. In a short space of time he had caught them up, and noticed with surprise that Clory was walking almost willingly with her captor. There was a rope passed round her body, it was true, but it was slack in the center, and although she lagged somewhat behind, there was no need to drag her along. Alan? questioned Colmervin as Wyco reached him. Is Sir Kerr. Good. I struck him, as he rose to hurt me. With one mighty blow I felled him to the ground. The heavy weapon you left me I dashed on his head. Now he lies quiet and cold and bloody. Wyco almost believed his story, and as he recounted it, he looked upon himself as a hero. "'Tis well, my Wyco," said Colmervin. "'What say you to that, my Clory? Alan is Surker. Never more will Kaimo rise upon his smiling face. Never more will he force his presence upon the people of Kimar. He is gone forever from our sight." But Clory made no reply. Only from beneath her mantle could be seen a slight convulsive movement and from underneath came a tiny tatter of blue that caught on a rosebush and fluttered in the breeze. Birds singing, 
sweetly smelling flowers, a sense of hunger and thirst. These were the first conscious thoughts Alan had as he opened his eyes on the world once more. He rose from the ground. His head was sore, but the bleeding had ceased. He plucked some luscious fruit that grew low to the ground, and it revived him. Then he tried to think. Clory had been taken from him once more, but he would find her yet. He tenderly touched the tree to which she had been bound, and stooped and picked up the silken garment she had left behind. It was just a piece of soft blue drapery that crumpled into nothingness in his hand. He kissed it reverently. It was part of his love. He looked round wearily. There, attached to a bush, was a piece of something blue. He bent over it. It was part of her gown. Further down, in the very center of the path, was another piece. Well, in the distance, he could see yet a third. It was a sign. Clory was directing him the way she had gone. The trail was difficult to follow. The breeze had blown many pieces away altogether. Others, it had carried away playfully into a wrong direction. But by careful watchfulness, he discovered the right way, and there were always the little pieces of blue to guide him. Then he lost the trail altogether. The last piece of blue was caught on a stone at the bottom of a mighty face of rock. No matter where he looked, there was no shred of blue to cheer him. He ran his hand over the surface of the rock. It was of a reddish sandstone and quite smooth. All around was a low-lying valley with neither a stone nor a tree behind which anyone could hide. He could see for about ten miles, and there was no sign of the fugitives. Backward and forward he walked by the mighty wall of rock, and always his journey ended by the last little flutter of blue. The cliff rose sheer perhaps three hundred feet, and the solid wall extended as far as eyes could reach. It was unthinkable that Kilmervin had scaled the wall, yet whither had he gone? Suddenly he heard a rumbling noise, the sound of a thousand people whispering, and in front of him a huge slab of rock swung back, revealing a cavity within. The whispering grew louder and louder. He looked round for a hiding place. There was none, so without a moment's hesitation he leapt inside the darkened cavern. A narrow path led downwards, and it was up this path the whispering seemed to be coming, whispering that sounded like a veritable army speaking in hushed tones. There was a piece of rock jutting out. Alan slipped into its embracing shadows and waited. The sounds came nearer and nearer. Then Kulmervin appeared with Wyko at his side. The voices whispered that a stranger was coming. The voices are never wrong. See, my Wyko. See yonder if Alan the evil is approaching. The voice whispered and rolled in the darkness. The whole place was unwholesome and terrifying. Colmarvin followed Wyko into the sunlight. Immediately they were out of sight. Alan slipped from his hiding place and ran swiftly down the narrow passageway. The faster he ran, the faster he drew in his breath, and it seemed as if a thousand men were mocking him. He sighed as his breath caught in his throat. Immediately there were a thousand sighs behind him. Quicker, quicker, he tore down the passage to where he hoped, somewhere, he would find his love hidden. The path was steep and narrow and was in total darkness, and he risked his life in his mad rush through the whispering horrors. He heard the voices again. Colmervin and Wyko had returned. Blindly he rushed on, stumbling here, tripping there, in his haste to reach the Ipso Rorca. The path took an upward turn. He tripped over something. Putting his hands out before him, he felt on the ground. Rough steps had been cut out of the rock. Steadily he mounted upwards, upwards. The darkness was intense. The whispering shadows terrifying but he never ceased his mad pace, so eager was he to reach Clory. Steadily he ascended the stairs. They seemed interminable. Then in the distance he saw a yellowish spot of light. As he rose higher, it became bigger, until it ended in a blaze of brightness. He had reached the top, and was in an enormous cavern lit by torches and sockets all round the walls. The awful grandeur of the place startled him. 
In the very center was a huge figure, twenty feet high. It was seated on a throne and had its hands outspread as if in benediction. It possessed a terrible face, cruel, hard, sensual, and the incongruity of the posing of the hands struck Alan at once. Round the cave at equal distances were other figures, all enormous in stature, and possessing in their features the same bestial cruelty and lust. Stalactites hung from the roof, stalactites forty feet long, stalactites fifty feet long, stalactites glorious, yet like deadly serpents with heads outstretched ready to strike. In one corner of the place was a huge beast in stone. Once it had lived, no doubt, now it was fossilized and cold. It was similar to the ichthyosaurus of prehistoric days, an evil-looking beast in its life, but infinitely more terrible in its stone period. Every movement Alan made was intensified a thousand times in this cave of whispering madness. He realized what the name meant. It could indeed drive the sanest man mad. He realized that he had a fair start of the two Kimarnians, and hurriedly hunted for his lost love. Softly he called, but although her name reverberated from floor to roof, no answering cry took up his challenge. Then whispering voices sounded nearer. Silently he slipped behind the stone monster that had once lived and mated. He was only just in time. Still louder grew the whisperings, and Colmervin and Wyco appeared at the top of the stairway. With the greatest difficulty, Alan was able to distinguish their words. The whisperings were so loud, so sibilant, that the voices sounded like one long hiss. The two Kimarnians came close to the big curved figure in the center of the cave. Colmervin bent low on both knees before the hideous figure. Spirit of our fathers, he cried out. Humbly I pray, take my soul into thy keeping. It is thine, thine forever, but in return, I pray you, grant me Clory's love. See, I sprinkle thee with my blood in ratification of my bond. And with a short knife, he severed a vein in his arm and sprinkled the statue with warm red fluid. Wyco was whispering, Mitsor the Mighty, have mercy, have mercy. Fool, cried Colmervin. Why mention that name here? I have bargained with Perox the Killer. I belong to him. Clory shall be mine. You have come thus far with me, my Wyco, but further thou shalt go. Down, down, on thy knees before Perox. Admit that he is great, greater than Mitsor. Ask a favor, nay, demand a favor. Seal it with thy blood. Wyco went down on his knees. His face was ashen, he was trembling in every limb. Then came a strange duet, intensified a thousand times by the whispering. Mitsor the mighty, Perox the killer. Perox, Mitsor, Mitsor, Perox. In a passion, Colmervin arose and struck Wyco down. "'Lie there, thou dog!' he cried. "'May thou sleep forever in Circer. "'I alone am mighty. "'Perox alone is great.' "'Wyco never moved. "'He showed no signs of breathing. "'Had he indeed fallen into the trance-like state "'that the inhabitants of Kimar so dreaded? "'It seemed hopeless to Alan "'that he would ever find Clory in this cavern of horror. "'He realized at last that Colmervin was a degenerate. "'The entrance of poor Murdoch had not caused the madness.' No doubt he had posed as a good Kimernian, but he suffered from the madness, and deep in his heart even denied the existence of Mitzor the Mighty, the great white glory, and indulged in devil worship and fetish honor. What this cave of whispering madness was, Alan could not conjecture. Perhaps in some far-gone age, fallen Jovians had met here, made the temple for their abominable worship, and lived a second life unsuspected by their friends. That image in the center was their god, Alan was convinced. But how had Colmervin discovered it? Had it been handed down to him from his childhood? Or had he in some way found it for himself? It was pitiful to see a young Kimernian of noble lineage, saturated with heathen mythology and heretical dogma. In truth, he was a menace to his companions, living a life of deceit and sin. 
he was a complex character for there was much that was sweet and lovable about him and he was much to be pitied for when his secret was discovered he would indeed become a pariah and an outcast at the moment he felt he was safe and continued his black sacrifice for clory's sake alan was forced to witness in silence the horrors that followed at the foot of the statue was a slab of stone raised perhaps ten inches from the ground upon it were ominous red stains quickly colmervyn set about his business in one corner of the cave were piles of brushwood these he piled high under the stone slab with a mighty effort he lifted the senseless wyco upon it and rested his head in a tiny curve at one end alan shuddered to see how it fitted the neck the use of the slab was plain to see he set fire to the wood by one of the torches and the smoke curled up and the wood hissed and sizzled when the fire was safely alight colmervyn went to a corner of the cavern and touched a hidden spring a door opened and revealed a flight of steps inside leading below as soon as he was out of sight Alan rushed from his hiding-place, lifted Wyco from the altar, and hid him behind the mammoth fossil. But the noise of his movements was magnified a thousandfold by the hideous whispering echoes of the place. Wyco was still and quiet, he scarcely breathed, and Alan dared not try to revive him. Colmervyn returned, bearing in his arms a precious burden in blue. Alan started and leaned forward. His darling was not unconscious, but was submitting to the indignity put upon her with her usual patience at the altar he stopped in frozen amazement the stone was beginning to show red the deadly fire should have begun its work but the altar was empty he looked round there was no one in sight with a cry of rage he let go the rope to which clory was fastened put her to the ground and darted to the head of the stairway leading to the cave's entrance and the yells of his curses and imprecations rose on the air in volumes of sinister whisperings alan was but six feet from his dear one with a mighty rush he leapt from his hiding-place and caught clory in his arms he made for the secret door through which Colmervyn had brought her. Colmervyn heard the sounds and was just in time to see two figures disappearing through the little door. With another oath he strode across the cave, but the figures had a big start. They had closed the door behind them, and his fingers hesitated over the secret lock, so he was delayed by his own impatience and anger. Clory had given herself up for lost, and when she felt two strong arms encircle her, a vague terror came over her, but even as she was lifted up, a voice whispered in her ear, "'Have no fear.' "'Tis I, Alan. Trust yourself to me, and I will save you.' Her emotion was too great for her to speak, but she let herself nestle in comfort in the arms of the powerful stranger. The door clanged behind them, more stairs, very narrow. Down Alan went, and the darkness gave place to a faint light. "'Where are we?' asked Alan. "'I don't know, but there is a cave down here which is kept padlocked. It was there I was imprisoned.' Alan looked round quickly. The passage had widened, and openings led off on either side. Immediately in front of them seemed to come the daylight. "'Can you run?' he asked tenderly. "'Yes, yes. Oh, to be free of Colmervyn!' Through the dim light they went. The whisperings were not quite as bad as in the upper cave, but still they were quite fearsome enough. They seemed to people the place with dead men, men who laughed and jeered and pointed their clammy fingers at their victims. But upon the whisperings came a more fearful sound— Colmervyn's laughter. Hurry, hurry, my princess. I cannot, she breathed. My heart beats. It hurts me to talk. Without a word, he picked the light burden again up in his arms and made off at a still greater pace. She flung one arm round his neck and clung to him confidingly. Nearer came the laughter. It was so close that it seemed almost on top of them. Ella never forgot that journey. With his precious burden in his arms he hurried onward, always following the light, and nearer and nearer came the footsteps of the madman. At last they turned a corner, the cave opened out, and they saw Kaimo, shining in all his glory, 
the sea was breaking gently on the golden shore there was plenty of shelter near rocks abounded and the vegetation was thick alan ran to where a dozen rocks man-high rose from the seashore there was in one a crevice that was wide enough to admit chlory stay there he whispered oh don't leave me i won't leave you for long i promise you but i want to watch for colmervin take care of yourself she pleaded oh run no risks i pray with a quick glance round alan left the shelter of the rocks no one was in sight colmervin had not shown himself quickly alan made his way to the cave from which they had emerged he entered it and to his amazement found it had no exit solid walls blocked his way it was just a hollowed-out rock on the sands going inland perhaps ten or twelve feet only alan was perplexed he had marked it as he thought by a big coloured boulder at its entrance but upon careful examination he found there were dozens and dozens of such boulders all over the beach stepping from his hiding-place he walked to the next cave that upon examination proved to go deep into the earth but it was not the cave from which they had escaped into the open wildly he rushed up and down twenty thirty caves he encountered all like very like the one he was seeking some had narrow passages that twisted and turned and ended in a cave next door others went further and after many serpentine turnings brought him back to the place from which he had started he knew he was in a dangerous position any one of these caves might hold colmervin an observer but unobserved rapidly alan made up his mind with chlory he would leave the cave district altogether they would strike inland if they were still on the island they would endeavour to find their way back to where the air-bird had been anchored that wazi keshta would return alan was convinced and when he did so they would be saved having made up his mind he began to retrace his footsteps but a hoarse burst of laughter startled him he rushed to the mouth of the cave there sailing away to sea in a frail craft was colmervin it was just a raft he was on with a tiny makeshift sail but it was not at colmervin that alan was staring horror-stricken incredulous but at a blue figure near the helm a little blue figure that was tied to a post to which the mainsail was fastened a little blue figure that held out her arms imploringly to the shore alan could only stare and stare incredulous unbelieving but the little craft grew smaller and smaller as it was tossed on the waves alan rushed to the rocks the crevice was empty Chlory had once more been snatched from his arms. End of section 28 The Cave of Whispering Madness Recording by Beth Blakely